It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the uh, show. I'm Tom Sumner, and we got a great one in store today. Coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk with uh, award-winning young adult author Laurel Ann Hill, who's... uh, New historical fantasy uh, tells the story of a young Mexican girl whose country is in turmoil. Plague of Flies uh, released this month, and uh, we'll talk about that and more with Laurel coming up uh, at 11 o'clock. And in the middle, the second hour of our three-hour tour, Andrew Campanella is back. If you uh, don't remember him, he is the president of National School Choice Week, which is uh, coming up. Uh, January 23rd through the 29th. We'll talk about what that is and uh, about school choice. But uh, first, we're going to start out talking about disassociative identity disorder, which used to be referred to as multiple personality disorder, with the author of a uh, new book. My guest this hour is, uh, well, she's a, a speaker, a retreat leader, uh, survivor of early childhood trauma. She's a retired school teacher and principal. But uh, her new book is called Crazy Reclaiming Life from the Shadow of Traumatic Memory by Lynn Barrett. And Lynn joins me by phone. Hi, Lynn. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. It's good to be here. Um, let, me, let, let me first ask about this whole thing about... Um, First of all, what disassociative identity disorder is, why it needed to be renamed from multiple personality disorder, and and what that really is, because multiple personalities always it seems to most of us like um, like like a made up device from from horror or mystery movies. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for that question. Um, so. Um, dissociative identity disorder. Let me explain to you a little bit what dissociation is. It's a normal body-mind function that uh, everyone experiences many times in their lives um, when we're bored, um, when we daydream, uh, when we're doing some kind of repetitive activity. Our our minds separate from our body temporarily and they go someplace else and we sort of forget uh, where we are because we're thinking about something else or we're going somewhere else. And that's really very normal. Uh, that body-mind separation, though, uh, can also come into play when someone is in danger or perceives they're in danger. 
And so veterans uh, who see the battlefield um, often will dissociate and they will dissociate when they come home as well. This is true for rape victims because dissociation can protect you from the full force of the horror that you're experiencing. So with dissociative identity disorder, this occurs in young children somewhere between the age of birth and probably age eight before the brain is fully developed. Uh, and what happens is when we experience chronic trauma, that means trauma or abuse, over and over again, our minds are dissociating from our body. And then it becomes so uh, frequent that our minds actually start to build up these walls around particular experiences, events, emotions, um, functions in our lives. So the little child uh, can go back out into the family or the place where they're living and rely on the people who are supposed to be taking care of them without being aware of the the abuse or the trauma that they have experienced. So it's functional for the little child because they have to rely on these adults. But when we grow up and become adults and we're no longer in danger, it becomes a very dysfunctional uh, coping strategy. And so then we begin to uncover our uh, different parts inside that were created when we were a child and we don't understand what they are and we experience a whole host of very strange and unusual um, symptoms and we don't know what that's about either and um, all of that is is the reason why I titled my book crazy not because we are crazy because we aren't we are not crazy but we sometimes feel very crazy because we don't understand what's going on inside of us. And it is true, you're right, that the um, Hollywood television examples of dissociative identity disorder may or may not be accurate, and they make it sound like a very exotic uh, condition when, in fact, between 1 and 5% of the world population has DID, um, which makes it as prevalent as bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. So it's actually uh, not at all uh, rare. It is very common. But you probably wouldn't know that your neighbor or your friend or your colleague has DID because most likely they would never tell you because it's a um, highly stigmatized condition. And um, and we've also been programmed not to uh, not to tell people uh, because uh, we weren't supposed to tell anyone about the abuse. Lynn, when I was um, a little boy, uh, you know, in single-digit age, seven, eight, nine, um, I I used to assume roles as uh, you know part of my imagination and play. I you know I. I would become Superman. I would become James Bond. And, 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 you know, later in life there are other versions of that which we could talk about differently. But my, my question is, when does it become a negative influence? Is, is it 
when you become someone else to cope with something you don't want to face as yourself? When you uh, took on roles as a young child, as we all do, you were taking on roles for a variety of reasons. Many of them may have been imaginative. You just wanted to have fun. You really thought maybe you'd like to be a cowboy or a fire chief or something like that. Right, right. So that's why you took on that role. When young children form new personalities or personas, they're not doing it um, to play or for imaginative reasons. They're doing it to survive because the experience of the abuse is so devastating for them that they... Uh, create another part to take the abuse so that they can go back out and actually live with the person who might be abusing them. Now, let me be clear that we don't intentionally create them. Uh, we're too young to know how to do that, uh, but our minds do that for us in order to protect us. So there's a big, big difference between what you're describing and what uh, people with DID, myself included, experienced the purpose of uh, creating this other persona is uh, to protect us from abuse that's happening over and over again. And in reality, when we're children, we don't even realize we're creating personas. When you were taking on new roles, you knew it. You know, today I'm going to wear a cowboy hat, tomorrow I'll wear a fire chief's hat. But we don't know that we're doing that. We um, we keep it all hidden inside. And when we become adults, it starts to come out, um, or sometimes in adolescence, some, anywhere between adolescence and the age of 60 or 70 years old. These uh, parts will start, they, they just can't hold it in any longer, and it starts to leak out. And, and it leaks out very painfully, so it's uh, highly unlikely that someone would intentionally create a part for, um, for their own purposes. You know, it's, nobody wants to have these parts because it's very, very difficult and very painful. Lynn, how does that... Um how does that provide any sort of emotional protection? Say, say for example, a young person is experiencing physical abuse. Um, this this alter ego or or other uh, identity. What they just they become another identity. Who's being physically abused? I, I, I don't understand where it becomes mm -hmm. protective. Do you, do you know what I mean? I'm not asking the question very well, Lynn, but, um, you know, what I'm, what I'm getting at is, you know, say I decide Superman is going to take all the abuse, and this, I'm not, I don't mean to be facetious, it just sounds that way. Um, aren't I just becoming Superman who's being abused? Well, I think you're asking a really good question because I think a lot of people don't understand that. So let me see if I can help explain it at least a little bit for you. These other parts do not protect us from being abused. We're still going to be abused. That's still going to happen because a little child has no 
agency to protect themselves. There's no escape route for them. They have, let's say they're being abused by a parent. Now, it's not always a parent who abuses uh, children, so I don't want to indict parents. I'm, an, I'm a parent myself. But let's say that it's a parent who is abusing this child over and over again. And whoever is doing the abuse has to be close to the child in some way because they wouldn't have access to the child so frequently. So the child has no way to escape. The child will be abused. The child will not be protected uh, from the abuse through having other altars. But what happened, but, but the child's, um, mind protects the child in that the child can, one part of the child takes the abuse and experiences it. The other part of the child doesn't know anything about the abuse and can go back and rely on the parent for food, clothing, shelter, and all the other things that little children rely on their um, on their parents for. Now, to take that uh, uh, into adulthood, let me just tell you something about my system. A little two to three-year-old girl named Rosie was the center of my system, and her MO was trust, and she trusted no matter what happened because that's what she did. She trusted. I had another altar whose name was Nanny, who took care of Rosie. And so when Rosie would be abused, Nanny would take the pain of the abuse. And so Nanny was always exhausted. Nanny was catatonic. Uh, Nanny was um, physically uh, and psychically um, depleted. Uh, but that way, Rosie didn't know about the abuse and could go back up and trust again. So that was the kind of dynamic that went on. And I am talking about them in the past because I'm integrated and I don't normally um, have uh, conversations with my other um, alters or insiders now, um, 20 years after integration. But they're still there somewhere in my brain because when you're little and uh, your brain has not fully formed and it's uh, still developing. This is the way your brain forms. But uh, in my case, after after um, 10 years of, of, of pretty much um, hell, pain, chaos, craziness uh, prior to my diagnosis, uh, and then with the diagnosis, being able to work um, using trauma-informed strategies and um, uh, getting to know my parts and getting to know their stories, they decided on their own to uh, come back together again as one person, and that is me. Um, now, it's always been me in some way or another, but dur during that period of time, uh, all Lynn, of my different parts... Lynn, I, I hate yes. to interrupt, but I need to put a pause here. I have to go to a break, sure. but I really want to talk about this some more. Uh, can you stick around for a few minutes? Absolutely. Great. My guest is um, the author of a uh, new book called Crazy, Reclaiming Life from the Shadow of Traumatic Memory. She is Lynn Barrett, and we'll have more right after this. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-Double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions and you know the material and you, and you care about it and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all you, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Hi, I'm State Representative Sarah Anthony. Our community and communities across the country are seeing a rise in gun violence. Firearm injuries are one of the leading causes of death among children. Parents, it is your responsibility to know where your firearm is at all times. First, lock your gun away somewhere safe. Also, make sure that it is disassembled and unloaded. It's up to us to prevent gun violence in our community. 
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about disassociative identity disorder with the author of a new book called Crazy, Reclaiming Life from the Shadow of Traumatic Memory by Lynn Barrett, who joins me by phone. Lynn, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, that was great. Just fine, Tom. Um, Just before the break, Lynn, we were talking a little bit about um, how these different identities um, integrate. Uh, you, You referred to them integrating, and then earlier in the segment, you made some reference to them communicating with each other, or at least acting things out on on behalf of other identities. Um, mm-hmm. When someone has disassociative identity disorder, is there a certain number of identities, um, or is that a case-by-case, as many as needed uh, kind of situation? And are they... Are these different identities um, sentient, and are they aware of the others? Um, Well, uh, the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual um, from uh, the American Psychiatric Association says that in order to be dissociative identity disorder, there has to be at least two or more distinct personalities. And for everyone, that number is different. In my case, I actually had almost 20 uh, different parts. In my book, I introduced 12. There are people who uh, have over 100, and there are people who have two. Uh, It depends on the individual and how their system developed. System is the word that we use to describe the different parts, um, insiders, alternate personalities. Those are all different ways that we, um, words that we use to describe them. And usually some of the parts are aware of the others and some of the parts are not aware of the others. Uh, there's amnesia between some parts and there's no amnesia between other parts. But there again, that is um, specific to each individual and how their system developed. And um, in treatment, part of one of the most important parts of treatment is to develop communication between parts so that all parts know all other parts and eventually know everything every other part knows. So therefore, they all... Um, it's easier for them all to uh, be to share information and eventually to become one. And I do want to caveat that with something. However, in in every case in dissociative identity disorder, the treatment is meant to lead to the healing of all the variety of symptoms that we experience that are uh, painful, dysfunctional and no longer necessary in our lives. But once we have healed them, some some uh, people with DID actually choose to leave their parts separate because they want to have functional multiplicity, they call it, and that's a very valid choice. 
Uh, other Others decide to integrate, and that's not always a conscious choice. In my case, it wasn't a conscious choice. My parts just were ready. They uh, said, okay, it's time, and they, they just pulled themselves together, and I function as one person. But different people with DID will come to a, a, a different decision. But for all of us, we have to um, address symptoms such as feeling unreal. Uh, we, we have a, a pervasive sense of unreality, that we are unreal and that our circumstances around us are unreal. Um, our emotions and our thinking don't match, so we have to bring that together. We have um, multiple threads of thinking in our head or, or other ways that our parts manifest themselves in us. Um, we often have body pain everywhere. Um, we usually have uh, suicidal ideation of some sort, um, and we have relationship issues, trust issues, issues of shame. Uh, all of those all of those symptoms need to be addressed and worked on in very deep therapy and it's hard work. When we have when we have worked through those those issues and the triggers that we experience, then we can start to um, think about how we're going to continue life uh, uh, this day forward. And again, with some of us, we integrate as I did and, and others uh, continue with what we call functional multiplicity. Um, how much of this book, Lynn, is is memoir and how much of it is a study of DID? Uh, I would say 98% of it is memoir. Uh, it is my story, and people tell me it reads like a novel. Um, they tell me it's a page-turner. Um, I can't speak for it because I wrote it, you know, and uh, it's sort of like it's uh, every page it turns automatically for me because I uh, put so much effort into it, but um, that's what I am told. So it really reads like uh, a memoir should read or like a novel. It's the story of this part of my life, um, but I, I do include little tidbits like I'm sharing with you now uh, dotted throughout as I would learn about them uh, I would include it so that you so that the reader will not only see what's happening in my life but hopefully they'll also learn little bits about um, traumatic uh, memory and dissociative identity disorder and depersonalization derealization um, those are just some of the terms that um, people may not be familiar with, and um, and I do explain them, but it's definitely not a study of DID. I am not a researcher. Um, I'm not a therapist. I know uh, my story inside and out, and I know the stories of lots of other people, too, um, because um, of the work that I'm doing now with people with DID. You know, when you talk about multiple personality disorder, or as it's known now, disassociative identity disorder, the first thing that popped into my mind, Lynn, was the book Sybil and, and the ultimate, uh, well, the movie that ultimately came out of that with Sally Fields. Um, is, are, are we talking about the same thing, and do we just do we understand it better now? than we did then? We are talking about the same thing, and we do understand it much better now 
than we did then. That was one of the very um, first modern cases that was um, recorded. And there has been some controversy over the <clears throat> recording of that book, um, but I would say that the book and the movie both I've, I've read and seen, uh, it, it certainly portrays uh, DID uh, accurately uh, for, um, for many people. But each of us, it, the experience is a little bit different. Now, there has been, over the past 30 years, a huge amount of research into traumatic memory and into conditions such as DID. And so there's so much more literature out there than there ever was before. So uh, it's, it's very um, uh, encouraging for me personally to know that and when I wrote my memoir, I uh, scoured uh, a good deal of that information to try to fit my own experience into what I was um, finding out that researchers had um, already been talking about. So yes, I would say that um, there is, um, a, a, regardless of the uh, recording of that particular story. That that story was written by uh, her therapist, not by uh, Sybil herself. So, um, uh, regardless of any controversies around that, uh, the 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 description is fairly accurate. But again, each of us experiences it very differently, and so um, uh, I think that Sybil's experience was quite profound. And I, when you refer to traumatic memory, what is that? Because I, I, I'm of the impression that a lot of people try to bury traumatic memory and, and mm -hmm, try mm -hmm. and forget about bad things that happened to them. Um, it, is, is that fairly normal or can you even successfully do that? Well, I think that's very normal. I mean, who of us wants to remember those things? We would much rather not remember <laughs> yeah, that, fair. you know? And sometimes I think we intentionally try to bury it, and I think sometimes we have no control in that. Our our, our, our minds just, um, uh, well, in, in, in my case, they dissociated. You know, we dissociated out into other parts of us. And um, so I think that that's a, a, a pretty... Uh, common and normal thing that happens. Um, ultimately, the the memories. Well, let me tell you a little bit about why um, it's sometimes hard to even capture traumatic memories. So, um, memory is uh, notoriously um, inaccurate for all of us. Uh, you know, you can't really trust your memory. And uh, although we do trust our memories and, and what else are we going to do, we, we, we do the best we can. But um, memory is stored in at least two different places. One is in the front brain that stores cognitive memories. So when your daughter had a wedding last year, you remember it this way in your cognitive brain and she remembers it that way <laughs> in her cognitive brain. And even over time, your memories of that event may change. And that is um, 
that's normal. That's just how our memories work. Traumatic memory happens when an event happens, any any event, traumatic or not, uh, it, it comes in through your nervous system and into your back brain first, and it's instantaneous. Your back brain makes a decision. Um, this is dangerous or it's not dangerous. If it's not dangerous, it goes to your front brain, and, and that's how you remember things. But if it is dangerous, it's sent back out into your body immediately so you can fight, 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 flee, or freeze. <laughs> uh, those are your three responses. And so that's what traumatic memory does. It never gets to the front brain. It, 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 it gets out into the body, and, um, and so the body... Uh, automatically chooses a response and in young children usually that's freezing because we don't have we don't have the strength or the power to fight it um, and we're not likely to be able to outrun uh, someone who's bigger than us so we freeze and and it just so it happens and 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 we 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 experience it but it it's it's back brain stuff and so it gets um, stored in the back brain, which actually means it's stored in the body. So the body, um, uh, traumatic memory is often experienced in the body, and it's experienced in um, repetitive activity that we're not uh, understanding why it's happening. It's experienced with... uh, different kinds of body pain. Sometimes we call that body memory. It can be experienced as anxiety, uh, over-the-top emotions, all of those things, but they're not attached with a memory. They're not attached to a cognitive memory. And um, one of the most uh, well-known authors of uh, traumatic research is uh, Bessel van der Kolk, who... um, I think was the founder of the Trauma Research Center at Harvard University, and he wrote a book called "The Body Keeps the Score," so that even when our, even when our cognitive brains don't remember something, the body does, uh, and the body's memory is frozen until we start to work on it and do the traumatic work um, uh, that we need to do in in order to unlock it. So I probably just gave you too much information, but I hope maybe that helps a little bit. No, I, I think that's great. How do, how do we define trauma? I, I very often associate trauma and, and related disorders to the military and, and battle, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, battle zones and, and battlefields and so on. Um, it, it, what, how do we define trauma? What what has to happen to a person for them to be considered traumatized? Well, I think that's a great question, and I'm not sure I can definitively answer that, but I can give you some thoughts about that. Well, I, I understand there's a certain amount of, you know, it's different from case to case, but, you know, uh, what, what can be trauma? Well, tra- trauma is the perception of mortal danger. So um, uh, it, either we are in mortal danger or we perceive we're in mortal danger. And uh, so for a child, um, that can be, well, it can be a whole variety of things, uh, including um, uh, being hospitalized over and over again without having 
um, uh, parents there to comfort them. Um, there are a very small percentage of folks with DID for whom that was the trauma they experienced. But for most people with DID, it is such things as rape. Um, if you're two years old and you're raped, that feels like mortal danger. Um, if you're um, four years old and you're beaten to a pulp over and over again, that feels like mortal danger. If you are um, five years old and you're locked in a closet for 24 hours, that feels like mortal danger. So, you know, we we as adults can say, well, that wasn't so bad. Um, I, I, it's hard to imagine that adults would say that, but sometimes they do. Um, but imagine being um, two or three or four or five or six and having these experiences and having no escape route and not knowing how to get out or get, get away from that and loving the people who are doing it to you. You know, these are your caregivers. Uh, and so it creates very crazy feelings inside um, because a part of the child knows that this is terrible and wrong and, and they're, they're afraid they're going to die. But there's a part of the child that loves this person and relies on this person. You know, for a lot of people, um, trauma is something that uh, they're not anxious to share with other people. Um, mm -hmm. What makes you comfortable sharing your traumatic experiences the way you have in this book and, and you know, in some of your uh, speaking and, and retreats and so on? I am 74 years old, and I am just coming out now. We are terrified to share these stories. We are terrified to do that. People with DID, do, most of them do not want to tell the story. I, obviously, that's not 100%, but most are terrified to do that. Um, and that's for several reasons. Uh, one is that it's called the hidden disorder uh, because it's a coping strategy that's created to hide the abuse from the world and from the person who's being abused. And so we get very confusing and conflicting messages even when we are starting to bring up memories. It's like, oh, I'm not, I'm not supposed to share that. I'm not supposed to tell that. You know, so there's this horrible backlash that comes from the event itself. Um, but also, uh, there's a present-day um, uh, fear that we have that we will be stigmatized, uh, that we will lose our jobs, that people really will think we're crazy. Um, and so we, we ordinarily never tell. I um, uh, went to seminary back in the early 2000s and um, uh, just a few months ago my seminary put an article about me uh, in the seminary newsletter and I immediately got an email from someone who graduated years and years after I did who I do not know I've never met never heard this person's name and this person said to me I almost jumped out of my chair when I read this article I've been diagnosed for 20 years and I've never told anyone because of fear. And I'm really 
trying to emphasize that because we are terrified and by the grace of God, uh, you know, I'm 20 years out now <laughs> and I never told anybody. I never told anybody. And so somehow at this age, Tom, I don't know how old you are, but you get to some point in your life and it's like, this is who I am. And, and, and I have something to share. And if I can share it in a way that helps other people, then I'm going to do it. And if, um, somebody doesn't like it, well, I'm really sorry, but you know, I am, uh, I'm going to share it. And I still get some inner backlash and I still worry and have some fear, but, um, I, uh, I've just, overcome that uh, you know I wasn't seeing a therapist for a long long time and now because with telehealth my um, therapist that, that really walked me through this whole journey uh, I'm able to see her uh, I said I think I need to see you every week for a while just as we're getting through this publication period because it is scary it's very scary um, so you are right most people don't want to share these things and um, and I have never wanted to share it but it is a story that needs to be told, not for me, but for others who are in the midst of it so that they might have uh, some hope um, and some inspiration. Because when you are in the midst of it, it is very dark and it is very painful and it is very chaotic. And so I want to be a person that people can look to and say, oh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There is life beyond this. Um, and I also hope that in, in sharing this story, it helps to educate the public um, so that it's not this scary, um, uh, exotic kind of a um, uh, condition, but it is the, re the body's response to horrific abuse. And uh, I think in many cases, we don't want to believe there's that kind of abuse out there, you know. Right, so so right. we just we just try to try to pretend it's not there. And um, I, I just so I uh, I accept at least for now uh, this role as spokesperson. And I I'm sure others have been there before me, and and others will come after me. But um, if my story can help others even a little bit, it will be worth it. My guest is Lynn Barrett, author of Crazy, Rec Reclaiming Life from the Shadow of Traumatic Memory. And Lynn, we're just, we're just about out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and yes. future. Do you have a website? I do. Um, I actually have two websites, but um, I would direct people to uh, www dot lynnbarrett.com and that's l-y-n-b-a-r-r-e-t-t dot com and you can find pretty much anything uh, on there I, I do weekly blogs um, and newsletters and I lead writers workshops for people with um, dissociative uh, disorders um, and um, I'd love to hear from people there's a contact form if anyone wants to reach out to me uh, I would be happy to communicate. Well, Lynn, thanks for sharing your uh, your story with me and the listeners this morning and in the book. And uh, that wraps it up. Keep up the good work. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me on. Take care. 
And with that, we'll uh, take a short break. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. But uh, uh, don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. There's uh, more to come. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello! I'm Maestro Ricky Magazine. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Lone Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan. Whiplet Technology. My Community College. It's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. 
Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Right, so now, in order for you to understand what I'm going to do next, I have to go way back and speak about my great-grandfather, whom we traced back to Marie Antoinette. As a matter of fact, my great-grandmother traced him back there a couple of times. <laughs> but he was partly responsible for the birth of my grandfather. He thought. <laughs> my grandfather was born in Denmark. He was Danish after his mother and Swedish after a friend of his father's. He was one of the great inventors of his time. He invented the burglar alarm, which unfortunately was stolen from him. <laughs> he was a brilliant man. He was, among other things, a PhD. Just a f- So was his wife. However, <laughs> besides being a brilliant, <laughs> he also was a great chemist. He was the one who invented the cure for which there was no disease in the <laughs> Unfortunately, his wife later caught the cure and died. <laughs> He was a strange personality. He always experimented with something. Once he, um, he crossed an Idaho potato with a sponge. <laughs> Imagine that silly idea. It tasted horrible. <laughs> but it sure held a lot of gravy. I think his greatest invention was a soft drink, which he called Four Up. <laughs> but it wasn't successful at all. So he invented Five Up. But still it didn't click, you know. Then came Six Up. But still nobody liked it. So he gave up and died heartbroken a couple of weeks later. But little did he know how close he came. <laughs> Then I was born, and when that happened, my parents were, well, they were not poor, but they didn't have any money. <laughs> so I was actually born at home. And when my mother saw me, she was taken to the hospital. <laughs> One day, when I was four years old, my father came home. And he found me in the living room in front of a roaring fire, which made him very angry. 
because we didn't have a fireplace. <laughs> there I sat, here my father stood, burning up. He pointed at me, see, my father was left-handed. He always pointed this way. I was sitting on the other side. So my father said, Borger. He didn't know my first name. See, in my father's family, we had a little trouble up here. In the head. My father was all right, but his two brothers, my male uncles. No, in Denmark, we always distinguish, you know. I don't know if you're familiar with the fact that we have three sexes over there. Male, female, and convertible. Matter of fact, I was supposed to have been back to Denmark this summer. But I ain't going. <laughs> oh, once I made up my mind what I was going to be, and that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> what I meant to tell you before was, and this is not a joke, this is really a fact, that Two weeks ago, we celebrated my uncle's 103rd birthday. Isn't that something? Thank you very much. 103rd birthday. Unfortunately, he wasn't present. Could he be? He died when he was 29. <laughs> but what I meant to say was that he was the one who went crazy. And his mother used to say that he went crazy because he never got the woman he loved. And that's a lot of nonsense because his brother went just as crazy. <laughs> and he got her. <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Mackenzie, writing the words of a psalm and then no one will hear. 
No one come to hear, look at him working Down in his socks in the night when there's nobody there What does he care, all the lonely people Where do they all come from? All the lonely people Where do they all belong? Nobody came Father McKenzie Wiping the dirt from his hands As he walks from the grave No one was saved All the lonely people Where do they all come from? All the lonely people Where do they all belong? The lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? have been nothing if not vague well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well unless you want to bid our free society farewell there is a super bad transmittable contagious awful virus and if we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July a super bad transmittable contagious awful virus and if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better... <coughs> now, back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the docks were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation, because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation. We'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation. It's super damn important that we practice isolation. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised. Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine, the last until July. A super bad, transmittable, Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus.
pilots, get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here.